I just feel like it's appropriate to just express uh, Danielle and I's thanks for this body, uh, moving all the way from South Africa to the States and looking for a body that we could connect with, feel loved, give love in return, um, and this has been that place for us. Um, so what a joy it is to stand here and open God's word with you. So uh, I think you're already in Psalm 54. Um, I'm just going to pray to settle my nerves and uh, just ask again that the Lord would be with us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you that you have spoken in your word that we are not in darkness, but that your word guides us and speaks to us. I pray you be with us now as we open your word. Uh, would you show us wonderful things, uh, direct our gaze from ourselves, from our lives to you, so that we might be changed and transformed. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, you don't have to grow up in the United States to be familiar with the names O.J. Simpson or Ted Bundy. They occupy international sentiment. The trial of the century is what they are often referred to. But each country, whether the States or South Africa or Nigeria, um, they all have their own notorious court cases that captivate a nation. Of course, some of this is just a matter of gossip and public scandal, the stuff of tabloids, or should I say X. But beneath this less serious concern is a more fundamental issue or desire that tugs at our hearts. It's the relief we feel when a person is rightfully found guilty. It's the anguish one feels when someone is wrongfully declared guilty. Better yet, it's the joy of being exonerated. Something in us, whether we can put a finger in it or, uh, on it or not, is triggered by fairness and equity. We are hardwired for justice. But now, if we are to exit the courtroom doors, if we are to turn off the news and close the Twitter browser, does this almost visceral thirst for justice define our language of prayer. Should our prayers be shaped by language of justice and vindication or exoneration? Somehow or other, I'm sure that some of us feel as though justice is disconnected from prayer, even though we are hardwired for it. Why do we pray in the first place? Or maybe we can ask the question from another angle, why do you not pray? In examining my own heart this week, I can confess that pride, arrogance, self-sufficiency, lethargy, apathy, these things easily strip me of any desire to pray. What about you? Maybe you're like me. Or maybe you're weary. Maybe you're tired of praying. Maybe you're hopeless. You've prayed and nothing happens. You've experienced or at least know of some severe evil and you pray that God would fix the situation but days, weeks, months and even years pass by and nothing changes. You're hopeless. Perhaps you're sitting here and you're thinking, I am not worthy to pray. Why would God listen to me? Some of us think we're not worthy because we've been told so by others. The words and the actions of others have pushed us down. They've been We've been belittled and led to believe that we are ultimately less than. And some of us have believed those voices. 
Some of us think we're not worthy because we look back at our actions and we say, I've had children out of wedlock, I've embezzled money, I've discriminated against others who don't look or sound like me, I am too dirty to be heard by the big guy upstairs. Friends, what if I told you that one purpose of prayer speaks to each and every one of us here today? Of course you say, a prayer of confession for the sinner that I am. Nope, I'm not talking about that. What about a prayer for healing then for the broken person that I am? I'm not talking about that either. What about a prayer for humility to curb my pride? This would be helpful. But this is not what I have in mind. What about a prayer then for hope in the midst of hopelessness? This is getting warmer. What I have in mind, and more importantly, this is not just my opinion, I think what we see in our text this morning is something else. A prayer for justice. A prayer for vindication. Justice? Yes, friends, justice. Justice speaks to each and every single one of us here today because justice speaks to that truly beautiful and good picture of wrongs being righted. You see, justice ultimately evokes a greater truth, a bigger reality than we can possibly imagine. The cosmic battle between good and evil, the difference between perversion on one hand and beauty on the other. It's the difference between idolatry and worship. Worship a stone image and you will rob, kill, and destroy. Worship the one true God and you will serve the widow, the orphan, and the sojourner. The Lord God wants us to pursue justice, to pray for it, to beg Him for it, so to inhabit His justice so that it fills the content of our prayers, that it shapes the cries of our hearts, that it colors the canvas of our desires. In other words, friends, justice and praying for justice, it's a prayer that God loves to answer. The Bible is very clear that justice is close to God's heart. Here's just three other Psalms that speak of this. Psalm 33 verse 5 says this, The Lord loves righteousness and justice. Psalm 11 verse 7 says, The Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. Psalm 37 verse 28 says, The Lord loves justice and will not abandon His faithful ones. Friends, how can we not pray for something that is so dear and close to God's heart? Something that He explicitly says He loves. You see, friends, whether we are on the receiving end of verbal abuse or if we find ourselves lonely, whether we've lost hope, whether we are guilty or innocent, a prayer of vindication gets at the stuff behind our problems. It is fundamentally a plea to God to right the wrongs of this world, to deliver, to save, to judge, to bring equity and respite. In a word, justice. So if you still remain unsure about this, I hope to show you from Psalm 54 that this is most certainly true. Psalm 54 kind of it offers us a blueprint, a roadmap for praying for vindication, for God's justice. Prayer serves the purposes of God's justice. And David is going to show us this through a very specific progression. So read along with me from Psalm 54, verses 1 through to the end. For the choir director with stringed instruments, a mascal of David, when the Ziphites went and said to Saul, Is not David hiding among us? God, save me by your name and vindicate me by your might. God, hear my prayer. 
Listen to the words from my mouth. For strangers rise up against me, and violent men intend to kill me. They do not let God guide them. Selah. God is my helper. The Lord is the sustainer of my life. He will repay my adversaries for their evil. Because of your faithfulness, annihilate them. I will sacrifice a funeral offering to you. I will praise your name, Lord, because it is good. For he has rescued me from every trouble, and my eye has looked down on my enemies. Well, friends, let me say it again in case I wasn't clear. Yahweh loves justice. We see in this text a fairly obvious blueprint, a how-to, a praying for dummies, a roadmap for how and why to pray, and what results we might expect when we pray. In case you didn't know this about me, I am a staunch Baptist, so we're going to have three points uh, at which to look at this psalm. Jokes aside, no man should make a living by playing fast and loose with the Bible. But these headings are quite obviously in the text. The first is the petition, verses 1 and two, uh, sorry, one to 3. They clearly state a plea, a request. The second is the profession. Verses 4 and 5 express an absolute truth about who God is and the fate of the wicked. And finally, verses 6 and 7, David publishes a twofold pledge in light of God's justice. He announces a response in light of the petition and the profession. So, let's consider this progression of petition, profession, and pledge as a way of discerning how we might better connect prayer with our innate longing for justice. We should first of all start with the superscript. Never leave that part out. This is a psalm of David, and it's one from a very particular point in his story. It's recorded for us in 1 Samuel 23, I'm not going to go there, but the superscript basically explains what's happening. If you're familiar with 1 Samuel, you'll know that it records a, and introduces to us the crazy relationship between Saul, the present Israelite king, and David, the one who's to take his place. David is on the run. Now, I don't mean he's training for the urban bourbon. I mean, it's the type of running when your back is against the wall when you're the target of some vicious enemy who won't stop till they've got you. Some of you know what this is like on a smaller scale. A belittling manager, a colleague threatened by your successes. For David, it's a manhunt. Saul's rage and jealousy has risen to the level of paranoia. David is with his army, yes, running from town to town, cave to cave, wilderness to wilderness. What adds further insult to injury is the Ziphites, if you didn't know this, residents of Judah, David's own tribe, his own people, oust his whereabouts. There's many examples of famous betrayals, right? Think of Cypher in The Matrix, or Lando Calrissian in The Empire Strikes Back. David's own people ratted him out, and of course... Uh, if we are familiar with the story, we'll remember that Paul is all the more happy to hear about where his enemy David is. And he blesses the, uh, the Ziphites and he says, May you be blessed by the Lord. Friends, don't be surprised when folks betray you while simultaneously invoking God's name. You see, it's the hypocrite, it's men and women of violence who use God's name in vain who wrap their evil deeds nicely in biblical terminology. 
Saul is an advert of those who use God's name to get their own way, to reward injustice and to punish justice. But this is David's unfortunate situation. He's driven into the wilderness, we're told, and only by God's providence does Saul relent from his pursuit because of an invading uh, Philistine army. David is a wilderness man, and he sits down, we can imagine, and he crafts this prayer. Of course, in the moment, it might not have been so artistically written down as it is here today. It may have taken on the, more, taken on the form of a more primitive, shaky, anxious, and childlike form. God, save me. Vindicate me. Please listen to me, God. And so begins this prayer for justice and vindication. It begins with petition. It very simply begins with a request. We've been there, folks, desperate, at the end of your rope. As is often the case throughout the Psalms and what we've seen in our series, the cries of God's people begin in a very human way by expressing our need, our lack, our weakness, our inability to figure out the situation. And this first verse here sets the stage for the rest of the psalm because at the heart of this psalm, it is a prayer for vindication and deliverance. Another way to word this, please, to ask for God to execute justice. To speak or act in such a way as to support or to defend, to deliver a just and right ruling. That is what the word vindicate means. It very much has an idea of courtroom justice. I already mentioned that the Lord loves justice, and here we have further confirmation of this deliverance, pleading His cause, vindication, God making right what is wrong. David's petition rests in two things. Did you see what those two things are? The name of God and the might of God. This would suggest that the idea of justice is very, very close to who God is. It's the reason the Mosaic law required two or three witnesses in order to establish a verdict. One only has to think about the stories of Jacob and Tamar or Joseph and the cupbearer and Pharaoh to know that stories of vindication saturate the Old Testament. Now, we don't really use this language of by your name do X, Y, and Z, right? But for David, the name communicates justice, deliverance. I think we actually understand this idea if you think about it in this way. You call on someone in a particular position of authority, right? That resonates with us. We instinctively recognize that specific relationships between people means that certain actions are appropriate. You go to a pastor for soul care. You go to a doctor for a prognosis. You confide in a close friend. Your children call on you when they hurt themselves. Commentator Gerald Wilson says it like this. He says, the name of God reveals his essential character. It's what he's known for. But not only is God's very identity so entwined with justice, but so is his might and his power. Church, let's just pause and think about this for a second. God has power to act. Isn't he good? To quote one theologian who's dear to my heart, Michael Matala, <laughs> he said this, and talking about this verse, and I, I had to put it in. He says, we don't just cry to God, a God who loves justice, but we cry out to one who has power to do something about it. I 
couldn't put it any way better than how liberating this is, friends. Justice in this world will be misplaced. We can be silenced. Witnesses can be paid off. Judges can be threatened. Not so with God. His desire and His love for justice is matched equally with His might and His power to enact that justice. This is good news. And David recognizes that in this scenario where, just, sorry, where injustice reigns and runs rampant, this ought to rattle and irk the Lord. Do you hear that in His words? God, hear my prayer. Listen to me. Hear this cry for justice. David continues to spell out the situation for us. And it's a deeply troubling critique of Saul and the Ziphites. Look, at me, look with me in verse 3. For strangers rise up against me, and violent men intend to kill me. They do not let God guide them. The idea here in the final phrase, if you have another translation, it might say, my eye looks beyond them or on them. But this idea is one of, sorry, not that verse. I'm thinking about the, um, yeah, God doesn't guide them. Um, his words and His justice, God's justice, God's word, God's way of life does not take up their mind. The carrot being dangled in front of their eyes is not the Lord, it's not His ways, it's not justice. Instead, it's their own hell-bound anger, wrath, and violence. This is what drives and motivates them. And this renders them as strangers, even though that they are part of the supposedly covenant people of God. What about us, folks? Where do we run to when we are afflicted and on the receiving end of hatred? Perhaps your gut response is just to not pray. I get it. That's okay. Let this psalm and this prayer be an invitation to take this up, to make this a practice. It doesn't have to be published in a hymnal, but justice and vindication are a matter so close to the heart of God that it is something that He wants us to pray about. God is just, He is in control, He has power, and He hears. So we can pray and we can petition expectantly. Now, of course, a lot more could be said about petitions, but in verse 4, we notice a shift in the psalm. Other translations make this a bit more explicit than the CSB. In the ESV, in the NASB, verse 4 begins with, Behold, behold. And what we have here is a profession, a shift to a declaration of truth. David says this, God is my helper. The Lord is the sustainer of my life. He will repay my adversaries for their evil. Because of your faithfulness, annihilate them. Church, doesn't this profession, David's confidence, doesn't it surprise you? It surprises me. But I think it mirrors the healthy reliance of a child on their parent. Notice also how the Lord is contrasted with Saul and the Ziphites. You see, David's enemies, they intend to take his life. But the Lord, what does He do? He sustains His life. The Lord doesn't guide Saul and Ziphites, but He leads and helps David. David's enemies rise up against him, but David can confidently ask God to rise up against his enemies. While the strangers, sorry, while the enemies are strangers, 
God is the helper and the sustainer. Far from asserting God's fondness, this word helper is the very same word used to describe Eve's relationship to Adam. This kind of help was not distant. Eve was taken from his very own person and used to complete humanity. This term helper here is an intimate term. God is near, friends. He is near to the brokenhearted. He sees the affliction of his people. He hears their cries. And he helps in a very real way. And he offers his assistance as one close to us. Now for those of us under the pump, David's prayer and this profession in particular teaches us a truth that runs all throughout Scripture. Vengeance is mine, I will repay. Yes, fostering a heart inclined towards justice is good and noble and to be encouraged, but we are not to take this vindication into our own hands. This is the same man who, when given the opportunity on two separate occasions, doesn't take Saul's life. Yes, the stress of affliction and the pain of needing vindication can so easily push us to act rashly, to act out on our own anger and frustration. But we need to, like David here, entrust ourselves to him who judges righteously. But this profession here from David also raises another question. Did you find it interesting or perhaps odd that David calls on God's faithfulness to annihilate his enemies? We could put the question in another way. Does your theology have room for God's anger? You see, friends, God's justice and judgment on sin and injustice is a righteous demonstration of His faithfulness. It's His faithfulness in action. David, in a sense, asks the Lord to flex His faithfulness. And what does he see? It means punishment for his enemies. Well, maybe, maybe we can just go in a different direction and say it like this. For you, maybe God never gets mad. And this might be evident by how you've never been angered by injustice that goes on. As long as it doesn't affect me, I'm good. Me and my family, I'm fine. Thank goodness my folks were wise with their money. Thank goodness we never moved to that part of town, went to that school. Maybe you're only concerned about spiritual suffering and not the suffering of the body. If so, perhaps we've spiritualized God's command to render justice within the city gates. You see, friends, God has called us, especially as His church body, to embody and to actualize His justice first among ourselves, but then outside of ourselves. I'm going to say a bit more about this later. You see, prayer church occupies a place in God's administration of justice. It serves the purposes of His justice. So far in the progression, we've seen the petition in verses 1 and 3. The petition for justice. We've just seen David shift to a profession. And now we're going to consider the third of this progression, and it's this. A pledge. Verses 6 and 7. Simply put, the pledge is the response to all what has come before. If there's anything that you take from this uh, progression, I hope it's this. 
Prayer results in action. Prayer results in action. And this is because of who David is praying to, right? The covenant-keeping God, humanity's helper, the sustainer of life, the one who will deliver and vindicate his people. And so in light of God's faithfulness and in light of his judgment, David turns in response to God and he says this in verse 6, I will sacrifice a freewill offering to you. I will praise your name, Lord, because it is good. For he has rescued me from every trouble and my eye has looked down on my enemies. David offers a two-fold pledge, sacrifice and praise. And it's funny because he can't go along without giving more reasons for why God is deserving of this praise. He says, I'm going to give you praise. I'm going to give you sacrifice. And then very quickly he says, because your name's good. God, you've rescued us before. You've allowed me to look past my enemies and to see a hope and a future. He's done it before and he will do it again. You see, friends, the beauty of the Christian walk is that we do not have to rely on the stories in this book to know that this is true. Thinking about this, I was reflecting on what Paul had to say to the Corinthians and and how he referred to them. He says, brothers, you are our letter of recommendation. Each of us, born of God's Spirit, can testify to God's work, to His mercy, to the transformation of our own hearts on how God has done a work on us. Can we not, friends? Can we not? We ourselves are witnesses that Jesus makes a difference in our lives. But before moving on to our third and final point, friends, I want us to take notice at the shape of this progression. Petition, profession, pledge. Petition, profession, pledge. You see, very quickly, the evil one can dupe us into flipping this order. Pledge. God, I will do X, Y, and Z. God, I will clean up my act. God, I will go to church. I will love my neighbor. How easy is it for us to assume the role of needing to prove ourselves before God would act? of thinking ourselves unworthy and unclean as strangers and not in an intimate relationship with the Father. You see, friends, this progression of petition and profession and then pledge, it teaches us that we can come as children, afraid, hurt, scared, bewildered, and in need. But the progression also teaches us that we can be transformed because as we confide, as we request of God, we abide in Him and He who is our help, we recognize His might, We feel His presence. We seek His justice. We let Him take vengeance. And this leads to praise and sacrifice. To an all-of-life worship and allegiance. Petition, profession, pledge. This is how prayer can serve for the purposes of God's justice. So church, we've looked at one of the purposes of prayer. One that perhaps doesn't initially come into your mind when a brother or sister asks you, how can I pray for you? God's justice, at least as it is in Psalm 54, lies front and center for David. We've also looked at the progression of prayer. Psalm 54 gives us a roadmap for how to approach God in the midst of suffering. 
especially in a world uh, bereft of God's justice. God loves justice, and so he wants us, his saints, to pray, to cry out to him for it. It is a prayer that he wants to hear from us. It is a prayer that he wants to answer in his good and just timing. But now I want to conclude this message by reflecting on the promise of prayer. And this third and final point is more of a summing up of what I think this text speaks to us. You see, I could put it to you as a question. What does prayer, and specifically a prayer for justice, promise? You see, David's sentiments are the most accessible to us, right? Lord, save me from Saul. Save me from the Ziphites. The covenant people are acting like those who are outside of the covenant, strangers and people of violence. This is not the definition of God. Yes, but God is David's help. He is the one who sustains him. God will vindicate David as he has done before again and again. Yes, David will again praise him. We have the privilege of knowing the rest of David's story that David is vindicated. God does dish out his justice to Saul and those who oppose him. You see, the story of David does not conclude all of God's dealings with humanity, especially when it comes to evil and injustice. You see, on another level, we might consider this prayer from the angle of the one who also suffered assaults from the covenant people of God. From the angle of the one who himself bore violent actions of the so-called elect. The one whose faithful life also sent out a prayer for vindication and justice. But this life and this prayer takes on a new shape on his lips. It's transformed. Because in this scenario, the faithful one, instead of praying for God's justice to land on his enemies, he prays ironically for himself to be the recipient of God's punishment. Church, Jesus takes up the very narrative of this psalm. He pitches his tent in our story. He, like Eve, becomes what we are, bone of our bone, flesh of our flesh. He becomes the very fitting and appropriate helper for us. But as he does this, he brings a subverted solution to the tensions that we experience as we seek to pray as David has prayed. You see, Jesus not only prays for and lives out God's justice, but he also presents himself as the object of God's ultimate vindication and justice. You see, his faithful life was given for our unfaithful life. Jesus' prayer was this, Repay me for the evil of my adversaries, God. Jesus seeks that just and good life by absorbing the injustices of this world. He soaks it all in. He drinks the very last of the dregs. Sins of the mind, of the heart, of the hands. Exploitation, violence, apathy, neglect, abuse, greed, misdirected loves and idolatry. They are all dealt with at the cross. In the famous words of Paul, he made him who knew no sin to become sin for us. You see, church, in God's faithfulness, his adversaries are annihilated by, for their evil in the death of his only son. Those who would place idols before their eyes, that's us. Those who seek what is evil and intend to take the lives of others, Jesus suffers their destruction. He was despised and rejected a man of sorrows. He carried our pains. He was pierced for our rebellion, struck down by God and afflicted, crushed because of our iniquities. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. 
like a lamb led to the slaughter, and like a sheep silent before her shearers, he did not open his mouth. He was taken away because of oppression and judgment. He was cut off from the land of the living. He was struck because of our rebellion. He was assigned a grave with the wicked. But saints, his prayer was heard. Save me by your name, O God. Vindicate me by your might. You see, friends, David pledged a free will offering as a sacrifice to God because of his vindication. Jesus, friends, offers his own life as that free will offering to God. And God was pleased to vindicate him for it. To extend deliverance and mercy and vindication. To liberate Jesus. To be his helper. To be not just the sustainer of his life, but the resurrector of his life. Because on that third day, church, the Father was pleased to announce the beginning of a new creation in His Son. To create as in the beginning. To cast a new light upon this darkened world. To usher in justice where formerly injustice reigned. Friends, this is otherwise known as the good news. This is the gospel of God, which God promised beforehand through His prophets and the Holy Scriptures. Jesus Christ our Lord, a descendant of, guess who? David, according to the flesh, who was appointed as God's powerful Son, according to the Spirit of holiness. Why? Because of His resurrection from the dead. It is a story of vindication, of God's power in vindication. It is the announcement that your God reigns. And so what, you might ask, what is the promise of prayer, specifically a, pr a prayer for vindication? Friends, it is this. It is the promise of inclusion into God's ideal world. To pray for justice is to be included into the life of God's faithful Son. It is to inhabit the new creation as a signpost of the coming kingdom of God. You see, for those of us who are Christians today, we live in this very awkward and uncomfortable reality between the age of injustice and the age of justice. We, along with David, know that God is our sustainer and our help. We know even more clearly than David did that God dealt with our own evil and violence. Yet we inhabit societies broken and wrecked by sin. Even we aren't perfect. And so what does it mean to take up this prayer with David, with Jesus, and to pray for God's justice? but rather implicitly is the fact that we cannot be defined by the actions of David's enemies. We cannot pray for deliverance and God's justice if we're the ones who are oppressing others. If we're hunting others down, if we're steamrolling the weak and the frail. If we're taking advantage of the outcast and the stranger with our selfish ambition and gain if we have any integrity, we will pray for God's justice and as we do so, it will serve to curb and check our own hearts. Yes, friends, pray for God's justice and vindication. It is the foundation of God's new creation in Jesus, but do so with humility and wisdom, making sure that the desires of our own hearts and the activity of our hands, they fall also under the justice of God. You see, friends, the promise of prayer is that it will do a work in us. It will do a work in us. It will align our hearts with God's. It will serve as a check against our own proclivity to sin and injustice. It will cause us to look to Him who rights all wrongs, to Him who renders perfect judgment, to the One who gives and loves righteousness and justice. In short, prayer 
For God's justice changes us. It should result in action. A heart more attuned to God's holiness. Hands ready to avert the perversion of justice. Mouths quick to confront abuse. It also means that like David, the vindication of brothers and sisters should be reason for rejoicing, for praise. Which only raises the question, do you know when your brothers or sisters are praying these types of prayers? You see, justice is an inescapably social and corporate dimension. It is the ordering of social life and relationships according to God's values. How can we pray for justice in the lives of others if those lives are closed closed off from us? How can we praise God for His vindication in the lives of others if our lives are closed off from theirs? Perhaps this kind of prayer and all this talk of justice challenges your own ideals. You see, it has implications for where you direct your affections. What hobbies take up your time? What habits you nurture? If our lives are all rosy and plush and the prayer of vindication never enters into your prayer vocabulary, then perhaps something or someone other than the Lord is your helper or your sustainer. Maybe you are sacrificing and serving something other than Yahweh. Perhaps something else occupies your definition of good. Because if our hearts are aligned with this and with His, then we will love justice. We will love righteousness. We will seek it. We will pray for it and act it out. So church, this brings us to our conclusion. My hope is that in looking at Psalm 54... And in our study this morning, it's shown us how our innate desire for justice is not at odds with prayer. That in fact, the language of justice should shape our prayers for ourselves, first of all, by putting justice into God's hands, but also collectively as we seek the well-being and the flourishing of this body as well as of our enemies. In short, prayer serves the purposes of God's justice. And in praying for justice, we can come before the Lord with our petitions and requests. We'll have our hearts and our minds turned to His goodness and we'll respond with a pledge of sacrifice and praise. Because prayer promises that we inhabit and participate in God's justice. I'll close with this quote from Gerald Wilson, commentator. He says this, Our relationships will and must change in light of this psalm. We will and must seek justice and equity as God does. We will and must respond to the whole creation in ways that seek its best interests rather than ours. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness. Where would we be without your word? Your word confronts us and encourages us and exhorts us and offers a balm to us in our suffering, in our affliction. Lord, the injustice in this world is not beyond you. 
because your name loves justice and you have power to do something about it. We pray that we would so inhabit this prayer that it would shape our language of prayer to you, our prayer on behalf of others. Lord, that your ways of righteousness and justice would inform our words and our, our hands so that we would act in response to what you have done. We thank you that you have suffered on our behalf and that you were vindicated and that we get to share in that new life. We pray that you plant this word deep in our hearts. May it bear fruit, we pray. Amen.